Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are coming to the story of Revelation, right, of Sinai, which we studied the last two years. We've studied different parts of that story because we're in the first triennial division we're going to begin and see how far we get, but we're going to begin and maybe stay with the story that precedes Sinai in this Parsha, which is the arrival of Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, and some interesting discussion between them, then the rabbinic discussion around that, uh, and then uh, to close with, of course, a contemporary reading of what we might learn from that. So that that is, I think, what we're going to do. So we may not make it to Revelation. Um, I think it's going to be hard to start Revelation at the end. You know, like it, so I'm, I think we'll just stay in the beginning. Um, but notice one of the important things that the rabbis are going to talk about is if you look at the end of Parshat Bishalach, last week's portion, it. If you look at 17, chapter 17, hold your finger where you were at Yitro and go back to 17.8. If you just want to listen, that's fine. But it's important that we know what happened here. At the end of last week's Parsha, remember in the Torah, there's no big, no big huge spaces between each Parsha. There's a minimum of nine spaces, but there's, there's not a huge distance between that sentence and you know, the, this business and what we're going to start this morning. And what is this business? It comes right before our Parsha starts this morning. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses says to Joshua, pick some men for us and go out and do battle with Amalek. I will station myself on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Right? So uh, they went to war uh, at this point with Amalek. And uh, that goes all the way through the end of Parshat Bishalach, right? And this huge um, business by Moses about inscribe this in a document as a reminder. God says to Moshe, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, right? Why was it so heinous? Why would their name be blocked out? Why was this attack by Amalek so heinous? He attacked from the back, the women, the children. So they attacked Israel from behind. And who's behind in a military arrangement? The women and children and elderly and frail and sick. All of those groups are the ones being protected from the front. Yes? So, you know, I mean, some in the back, obviously, to protect them as well. But Amalek attacked not the fighting men of Israel, but the vulnerable. And this made it particularly heinous. And so that is a memory that stays with Israel, so much so that God says, I will blot out the name of Amalek, right? Which is interesting in its own way, given that what is our commandment? Zachor et Amalek. Remember Amalek. Whose name I will blot out. All right. So anyway, it's, just, it's, like it's included in the Torah. Juxtaposition. It's included in the Torah. It's very interesting. Anyway, so that is what happens immediately before what we're about to read. So hold on to that. Just have that in your now Torah knowledge so does this one box. Meanwhile, 
<laughs> so immediately, so the, the question goes, Linda, to exactly what you're saying. Is it meanwhile? Is it sometime later? Right? And that's what the rabbis are going to go to, is it's going to be temporal. Their discussion is going to be about time, dealing with this business of Amalek. All right, so uh, who wants to read at 18.1? Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after she had been sent home, and her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, that is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' sons and wife to him in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. Each asked after each other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Okay. Thank you, Bert. So, Vayishma Yitro, Chohen Midian, Choten Moshe, et ko asher Elohim le Moshe Yisrael Amon. So, Yitro, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moshe, heard all that God had done for Moshe and for Israel, God's people. What did he hear? And from whom? And from <laughs> whom? So what, what he heard was something about that God had brought Israel out of Egypt. But first of all, who told him? And what part of that would motivate Yitro to come to Moshe now in the desert. So Aviva Zorenberg has this wonderful uh, teaching in her book on the book of Exodus. Um, at, at this part, her book is on the book of Exodus is called The Particulars of Rapture. And in there she talks about um, that this is more than just news, right? There is a narrative that is so compelling to Yitro about something about this narrative that it draws him to the desert to the wilderness with his daughter and sons-in-law to go meet, to go be part of this people, right? To go to this people. So we could read the shot, the simple explanations. He's bringing Tzipporah and the kids to Moshe. Okay, we could read it that way. But the tradition reads it that when Yitro hears, he hears something so compelling that he has to go hook up with Moshe and these people in the desert. And so Aviva Zorenberg talks about narrative. And that for us as a people, that really is how we understand Torah. Right? That it's, it's the narrative that is compelling enough to call us into a different relationship with each other and the one and, uh, and ourselves. Um, so he hears th about this that's happened to Moshe and the people. We don't know how. We don't know from whom. So he took Tzipporah, Moshe's wife, after she had been sent home. What is this? When did Tzipporah get sent home? We don't know. We don't know. We do not have that story. We do not have that tradition. We've lost that somewhere. Um, 
that, that there must have been a story about you know Moshe and Sipora. Do you remember the bridegroom of blood business, where she circumcises somebody with a flint knife? Very nice, Reuben. So there's some folks who want to say there's more to that story that explains at that point why Moshe and Sipora split at that point. But we don't know. It's all conjecture. So we don't know. For some reason, she gets sent back, maybe for her safety. You know, that it's silly. You know, that Yitro thinks it's dangerous and silly for Moshe to take Sipora and the kids into some dangerous situation in Egypt don't know so we don't know if they were there with Moses in Egypt they were not oh they were not because the last time we see her is in the desert on the way to Egypt and she does that whole flint knife business and she was sent back so we or she went back or she went back. We don't know. The, the, only, the only thing is that we get this form of the verb, shilucheha, that she had been sent. In her having been sent home. There is some discussion about the other ways that this word, that this verb could be interpreted. One of them could be sent away, meaning divorce. That there is a sense in the... Um, I think Ugaritic, you know, that that, that, that that cognate in Ugaritic can mean divorce, but it seems unlikely given that they're reuniting here. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to suggest that. Maybe it does mean there's some kind of disagreement, you know, and there's a separation. Um, we don't know. Maybe, um, maybe they didn't think it was safe enough for her to be... Well, that makes the most going. sense, right, mm-hmm. is, that, is that it's dangerous. It's just too dangerous for her to go. Um, there's also uh, a way that this can sometimes be used as a noun to denote uh, a dowry. But again, doesn't she does call him a bridegroom of blood in that episode. So maybe this is related to the term for dowry. You know, like, don't know. But, um, but the way we typically translate it is that it means like... Lishloach to send that it's the passive of she had been sent. Uh, <clears throat> so her two sons, one was named Gershom, right? So put the put Gersh, break Gershom into two, and you get Gersham, stranger there, right? So I meaning for Moshe, I've been a stranger there. Why her two cents? Why what? Nice. Her two cents. Oh, yeah. Her nice. Two. Mm-hmm. That, that's what the Hebrew really says. Yes. Shnevaneha, her two sons. Mm-hmm. Rabbi, I, I, I missed something. You you posed a question, but did, did we answer it? What Uh-oh. was so important that uh, brought... Uh, we did not answer. Mm-hmm. We did not answer. So, you know... It, there's lots of guesses about, you know, which part of that narrative was so compelling to Yitro, right, that he comes to the desert to hook up with his people. For the rabbis, they go a step further. The rabbinic tradition is that he converts. He leaves his Midianite religion, and he's come here to the desert to greet Moshe, and he's actually converting to Judaism. But he leaves again. 
but he leaves again. So possibly he comes to convert, and then he goes, you know, to practice on his own, maybe to go convert others. You know, who knows? It's of course unlikely, but but it's interesting that that's where the rabbis go, right? That they, they see this as so compelling to Yitro that he doesn't just come to bring Sipora and the kids; he comes to join. Based on the compelling narrative that he has heard, he comes to join his, you know, future to this people. You'll, you'll show me when we get there. Show me where you think the rabbis find evidence for that. Question. Is there any um, possibility that the, um, the argument between Moses and Zipporah could have been over the act of circumcision itself? Possibly. Why not? Write that midrash. I'd love it. Why not? Um, It seems to be effective. Right? It's effective. So if he argues with her about it, it'd be interesting to know on what grounds. Do you know what I mean? Like, Unless he doesn't see the danger. Maybe only Zipporah sees the attacker. The destroyer. You know, she's, there's many theories that Sipora, being the daughter of the high priest, is herself a priestess. There is a very long tradition that Sipora is a priestess of Midian. If so, I mean, how else does somebody know how to whip out a flint knife and cut off somebody's foreskin quickly and safely? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it seems that this is something she knew how to do, that, that, it, that it was a ritual act that she was very familiar with performing, which is argument for her being a priestess. So does, does Moses charge, you know, she's, what do you mean you saw an attacker and then you needed to hack something off somebody and touch their feet with it? What? Right? <laughs> Reuben, something's bothering you? Something's troubling you? Breakfast, mostly. Breakfast, mostly. <laughs> Understood. Understood. So, Gershom, I was a stranger there. Um, and the other was named Eli Ezer, meaning my God is my help, right? How was God my help? Delivering me from Pharaoh. Let us remind ourselves once again, when Eve is called Adam's Ezel, his help, let us remember, God is referenced routinely in the tradition as Ezel, as help. And it doesn't mean secretary. <laughs> right? Eve is, you know, when you talk about God as the help, as my help, it means God saved you. It means God has some kind of strength and power that you do not. So when Eve is called Adam's Ezer, we just need to remember that. Not his servant. Not his servant. I mean, because I think often helpmate gets understood to mean his assistant. You know, like she's there just to help him do whatever he decides needs to be done. And that is not the sense of Ezer in the Hebrew, certainly not in biblical Hebrew. God is Ezer. Right? Some, Some... God has something that the person lacks and therefore delivers the person from danger, right, in that. And so, I mean, I, much, I think that's much closer to the meaning for Eve with Adam is she has something that Adam lacks or why would she need to exist, right? That they become a balance for one another. They become something together that neither one 
would be a loan. All right. Moses uh, named Gershom, uh, rather Eliezer, it would be more reference to Moses himself, saved from, from uh, Pharaoh's sword. So maybe he named his son in memory of what happened to him. Correct. That's what he does. That's exactly right. Exactly right. What did the rabbis say about why father-in-law is repeated so many times? Um, I think he just yes. used to say once that Yitro was his father-in-law, and every time he says Yitro, he says, Yitro, don't forget it. Father-in-law, father-in-law. Moshe. Um, so, yes, there is a discussion in the rabbinic literature about the respect that Yitro shows Moshe, that when Moshe lived in Midian with the high priest, all of the respect went from Moshe to Yitro. And so that now the rabbis point out, to your point, to your very good and close reading, that he keep, it keeps calling him father-in-law of Moshe because now that is Yitro's claim to fame. I am father-in-law to the right. king. You know, that before, all of the respect went from son-in-law to dad, whose business he worked in, and now this lovely rabbinic reading goes to exactly your question. The rabbis noticed, right, in their careful reading. It says it so many times. Why? We know who this guy is. Because now Yitro has come to understand that Moshe is the big guy. And so the way Yitro is now defined in a respectful way is as the father-in-law of Moshe. So maybe he came to join them all because he has standing in the community. He has Yichis now, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yichis. Yichis. <laughs> Nachis is joy. Yichis is connection. That's ah, fun to say, too. Yichis is good. It's a good word. Right? It means you have, you have connections. You're, you know, and usually it means family connection. Yichis. Pedigree. Pedigree. Yeah. So now he's, he's joining the old boys club. Yitro? Yeah. 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 He's, he's come from his club, according to, this is all rabbinic. According to the rabbis, he leaves his club because now Moshe's in the elite club. Once, hey, nothing's happening in Midian, you know, like, you know, what's happening with the Midianite God? Nothing. But what's happening with yud Hey vav Hey? Oh, Yitziat Mitzrayim, right? The splitting of the sea, the plagues. Um, all right, so, so he comes, like, because of all this amazing stuff that's happened with yud Hey vav Hey. So, f- verse 5 that we read, Yitro... Moses' father-in-law, to your point, brought Moses' sons and wife to him in the Midbar, right? So the rabbis say, why does Torah need to say in the Midbar? Duh. We, we know where Moshe is. Why does it have to say it here? Torah's never, God forbid, redundant, right? So if this is not Department of Redundancy Department, then why does it have to say in the wilderness when we know they're there? And the rabbis say, because it's stressing that is how compelling the story was, that that the high priest would leave the metropolis and a successful, cultured city, a life of comfort and luxury and ease to come to the Midbar? That's how compelling that narrative was to Yitro. That's how, how powerful the story that it gripped Yitro and he had to go, even if it meant hanging out, right, camping, in the desert, leaving his amazing, comfortable, high priestly life in Midian. 
because then we get where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He's just going to go to a military camp instead of, right, to the barracks instead of the spa. Exactly. Thank you, Linda. All right. Exactly. All right. He sent word to Moshe. So we're getting a little bit out of order here, right? This verse should have come before verse 5. He sent word to Moshe, I, your father-in-law Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So he sends someone right ahead of him to announce that he's coming. That's the respectful thing to do. Uh, and he's a man of some importance, right? So the bum, 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 here comes your father-in-law. And Moses did what you do in the ancient Near East when you are showing someone respect. A guest has been announced that they are coming to your camp at the foot of the mountain. What do you do? You don't wait for him to arrive, God forbid. You find out the queen is coming. You do not wait for her to show up on your doorstep and ring your you know, tent doorbell. Right? You go out to meet them. You go, you hear they're, as soon as you hear they're coming, you saddle up and ride out to show respect, to, to, meet the, to meet royalty. So Moshe does that. He goes out to meet his father-in-law. And what do you do once you get there and you meet the person? It is appropriate for you to bow to the ground, right? Remember, you go to the knees. Then you put your forehead to the ground. This is the way one in the ancient Near East shows respect for the person coming to acknowledge their status, right, is by showing obeisance, right? Dogs understand this, right? That you, you physically show that you are accepting a submissive position physically, you know, before the dominant, the person you are acknowledging as dominant. Tell Muslims. Right, part of the prayer. Well, where do you think yeah. that came from? <laughs> so that, that's exactly right. This is, that was the posture. By the way, now that you bring that up, that Muslims pray in that position, of course, because before Allah, they are mm -hmm. making obeisance. That is how we used to bow. When we bowed before God, you went to the knees, you put your forehead to the ground. As soon as Islam conquered territories in which Jews were living, it was much easier, your life was much easier if you were Muslim, right? We were protected, we had it much better under Islam than Christianity, let's remember that. We had a much better life under Islam than under medieval Christianity, which was horrifying, right, for many of the Jews. Um, evidence the, the Inquisition, yes. So, um, but once, but it was still a lot easier to be Muslim. So if Muslims prayed that way and Jews bowed before yod heh vav -Hey, Adonai that way, how could you tell if Jews had converted to Islam? You couldn't, right? So it was important for Jews who suffered the, the, um, difficulties of remaining Jewish, it was important to them that no one think they went over. Right? They wanted to, to be proud about we have not, in fact, converted. So it's one of the impulses, right, to stop that posture. To stop, first of all, it's not normative, you know, outside the, the Near East in some ways, but, but also it was, it was a statement about, okay, we want to we make sure we distinguish our body language from that of Islam. So we think of it as Muslim, but it was 
in fact, biblically, that, that really is our culture that we, that we come from, is this, this form of obeisance. Yes, Mickey. Moses has this course with his father-in-law, but there's, there's no comment about his wife and kids. Other than that they're coming? Yes. Correct. This is about the relationship between his father-in-law and him. This is there's nothing about, correct, this is not about family. This is not about Tipora or the kids. Um, so what's that conversation? Hi, honey. Glad you're here. Wow, the kids are so big. They got braces. I, wow. When did that happen? Right? So another conversation, another scene we're missing is the reunion between Moshe and Sipora and what that conversation would be. This is each other's welfare. That's what we know. That he, he, he asks Yitro, how have you been? Right, they, but they have... Not Sipora. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Right, so what, what did he say to Sipora when he saw her? <coughs> wow, you've lost some weight. You, did you change your hair? Like, we, we have no idea what, what goes on between them. All right. Isn't this about that yud heh vav is the supreme god? Just having shown this to the Egyptians, and now Yitro is coming. Whoa, whoa we're not there yet. No. We're not there yet. Next paragraph. I mean, the Next idea paragraph. That he's coming, that, Next paragraph. He, he could be just delivering Tipora and the kids until now. Oh, but the why that you said before. We, we don't know until now we're going to get, right, some, I asked you to show me the basis that the rabbis use in Torah to say he came to convert. Right? We're, so now, okay, some, somebody read... You said next paragraph? Go. Yes, next paragraph. Read. Eight, um, please. Like Moses seven. then recounted to his father-in-law everything that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that had befallen them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Yitro rejoiced over all the kindness that the Lord had shown Israel when he delivered them from the Egyptians. Go. Yes. Blessed be the Lord, Yitro said, who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Yes, by, by the result of their, that's where I have it from, their mm-hmm. very schemes against the people. And Yitro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moses, Moses' father-in-law. Okay. We don't know still what Yitro heard. We know he heard something. The rabbis want to say it was so compelling it brought him to the desert. The shot could be he heard. That means Moshe's out. Moshe's safe. I got to take the kids and my daughter back to him. It could be that simple. For the rabbis, of course... They find textual evidence to suggest otherwise. We just read it. All right. So Moshe recounts everything now to his father-in-law that yud heh vav did. It's important that we remember this is not the Lord, right? That translation loses the sense of, right, that it's yud heh vav that Moshe's talking about. No, no, it's, I mean, that's what I have too in my translation. I'm saying when we read it in English, we right. lose that the Lord is somebody else for, for what's his chops? For, um, for Yitro, thank you. For Yitro, the right. Lord is somebody else. Right. God is somebody else for Yitro. He's the Midianite high priest. 
So when you read English, you lose that what Moshe is telling him is yud hey vav hey, everything yud hey vav hey did for the Israelites and to the Egyptians on behalf of the Israelites and how yud hey vav hey delivered them, meaning not your guy. And Yitro rejoiced over all the kindness that yud hey vav hey had shown Israel when yud hey vav hey delivered them from the Egyptians. And he says in verse 10, Vayomer Yitro Baruch yud hey vav hey. Blessed be yud hey vav hey, right? Who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And he says, Atta, now, Yadati. It's interesting to figure out exactly what the tense is here, right? Is it, I knew or I know? Now, I knew or now I know. That makes a huge difference, does it not? It could be something he's just newly discovered in hearing this from Moshe or... It could be an affirmation of something he already knew that he's just now sharing with Moshe. Yadati makes it. Now, he says, I knew that Yadheva, or now I know. It doesn't matter. In any case, he's acknowledging, yes, that that Yadheva is greater than all the gods. Kivadavar asher zadu alehem that and by this, you know, by this thing that has that has happened that has been uh, done to them. Vayikachitro choten Moshe olaus vachim and so uh, Yitro, father-in-law of Moshe, uh, <laughs> makes an ola, makes a sacrifice le Elohim to God. Vayavoa Haron and Aharon comes. And all Ziknei Yisrael, all the elders of Israel, le'echol lechem im choten Moshe lifnei Elohim, to eat food with the father-in-law of Moshe before God. What kind of a meal is this? It's burnt offering. So they're coming to eat. It's a sacrificial meal. This is not they were having pizza and hanging out and visiting over beer. This is a very solemn ritual meal. Who's Aaron? Aaron is the big guy. He is parallel in some ways, right? In our tradition, he's the high priest. You bring the high priest to eat with the high priest, right? You bring your guy out. That's that's a that's a good thing, right? That's a dignified. How do you not dignify? Um, he's honoring Yitro by bringing Aaron out and all of the elders, right? So this this is a big deal. This is a big meal. All of the leadership of Israel are there. Why? What is the reason for the Ola and the Zevach and the meal? If there's a sacrificial meal, sometimes it's just you've made the sacrifice and now you share it. These are dignitaries, so possibly it's just because that's who's going to come to the father-in-law of Moshe, high priest of Midian's sacrificial meal. Only the elite, the VIPs, 
What else could it be? You know the rabbis aren't going to stop there, God forbid. If you the conversion theory, then this would be to celebrate that he has brought an olah and a zebach in order to convert. That this is the sacrificial offering of a convert to Israel. And that they join him in the celebratory meal because they are welcoming him into their people. For the rabbis, this is Yitro's conversion. In verse 11, he says, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. So right, that would mean right, that he's right. accepting yud heh vav instead of the god of Midian. Okay. This is where the rabbis find evidence that, in fact, Yitro acknowledges yud heh vav the greatest god of all, and so he's converting. Now, what do we know about ancient Near Eastern times and the way people talked and the way people did things? Why would you argue that is not necessarily true at all? can see that it's that Yitro saying that Yudhe Vavhe is the greatest of all the gods. So he's not saying there's not any other gods. Exactly. Yeah. And he sits down with Elohim, not Yudhe Vavhe. So we've got Elohim, not Yudhe Vavhe. Elohim can be generic term God, little G. So maybe he acknowledges Yudhe Vavhe is greater than all gods because he's talking to his son in law. <laughs> Who worships this God? Okay. Right? Wonderful. Like, in a system where there's lots of gods, does it re- what does it really take away from me to acknowledge your God is, oh, fantastically more wonderful than all the other gods? But really, does it, what's this? Especially when I'm in the company. Especially when I'm in the company of those people in a military camp. <laughs> okay. Your God is fantastic. Can't Elohim be read as a plural? <laughs> What is the advantage to that point of view? That he doesn't convert? Um, is that he's acknowledging Moshe's experience and the people's experience of their relationship to their God. And that he's honoring that. For me, what I like about it, it's a good question. What I Because you're like, why did she even bring that up? Why? The benefit to me of that experience, and this is going to tie in a minute to Amalek, is that Yitro has no problem being the high priest of Midian and acknowledging that for Moshe and Israel, Yudhe is their deliverer, their source of safety and um, definition of who they are, you know, and who they're in relationship to. What if all religious people could do this? Well, it sounds like diplomacy. It sounds like he's being, he's being diplomatic. very diplomatic. So on the one hand, you could say, okay, right? Like, is great. Like, does he really mean it? He's just being a diplomat on the one hand. But even if so, wow, how wonderful. Could we go to somebody and say, you know, Jesus really is fantastically amazing. What, what, like better than all the gods I can think of. What, what if we could really say something like that, Right. We, we choke on those words as modern peoples, right? We have this idea that you can't possibly really, truly respect someone else's understanding of God without it somehow implicating that yours is wrong. What if Jesus really is God? What does that mean for me, right? Can I really say, okay, for Christian people, that really is God. It's true. Not just their well-intentioned, you know, but kind of wrong, um, experience, you know, experience. What if it's really, what if, can I acknowledge as a Jew that it's really true? 
what would that cost me? Rabbi Nancy Fuchs Kramer, one of our teachers um, at, at rabbinical school, who's this fantastic, amazing human being um, and a glorious scholar, she is so, she's at the cutting edge of interfaith dialogue because she believes dialogue, if you're truly having dialogue, it means you're ready to have your own certainties called into absolute question. And most of us do not enter dialogue ready, truly ready, to have what we assert as our understanding of truth questioned to the point where we might go over. Because we have our own dialogue sometimes. Right, we're not... about politics. I won't read the New York Times because they support Obama. And more and more, what the scholars are concerned, what, what psychologists and you know politicians, everybody's concerned about the fact that we have more and more and more choice about what we listen to, what we're exposed to. We now, I just read this, and so wait, let me finish one thought before I start another one. Um, and the danger of that is I don't ever have to really confront or read in any kind of depth something that challenges my position. Not really. Um, I know that it's out there, and I see the headline, but then I turn to another article, or I turn to another paper that's going to tell me what I want to hear about Obama, right? So, so that's one, on the one hand. On the other hand, I heard this very disturbing, I read this very disturbing article that was talking about Google searches, that now if you, Lois, Google something, and I Google the same term, our searches are different. Whoa. Our search results come up different based on our history of of using the internet, of searching. Oh, that's that is really scary, because now, even if I just go to what I consider to be an objective machine that you know, crunches, who, you know, whatever, and I just put in my term, I'm assuming what I get back is value neutral, is like, right, is, is completely, um, what do you call it? Non-biased. And now I'm, now? It's tailored, the results are tailored to what we want to see. That's the value to me of Yitro not converting Davka, but coming and showing absolute and ultimate respect for these people's experience that is different from his own. He is a practitioner of his relationship, of his people, to their understanding of God, but has no problem offering a sacrifice to Moshe's God. It's not a problem for him. It doesn't somehow challenge his core. Because he could be accepting. He could be accepting. He's also polytheistic. That helps. You could have more than one helps. I think you're saying respect is the key word because these days people don't respect somebody else's choice or belief. Robert? Father. So what I'm hearing too as a mom, that you know, I'm thinking it may very likely that my child will decide a different faith at some point. It's not my favorite idea, but he's actually the father of Moses' wife. Moshe is intermarried. Moshe has intermarried, mm -hmm. yeah. and Yitro doesn't have a problem with a Christmas tree in the living room. <laughs> Right, right. So, because how would we feel? Would, like you said, as parents, would we walk into our child's home and offer some incense on right the altar to Buddha? Could we do that? Would we do that? Like, 
right? As a parent, how amazing that Yitro's mm-hmm. like, okay, fine. Sipora's hanging out with Moshe. Okay, this is their experience. She's she's now having this experience with these people. Okay, then I'll make a zavach to Yerevavi. Okay, that's that's compelling to me. That's very compelling to me. So you were going to say something about it. Um, to the point that that actually you just raised about Buddhism. My sense is that this discomfort that we have about other religions does not extend to Asian uh, religions, of Hindu, Buddha, to Native American. Uh, I mean, I think I, we, have respect that. So what's, when you think about it, where does it extend to the other versions <laughs> of our story? So our, our, so what I hear you saying is our relationship to religions that we have lived under, mm-hmm. who have tried to convert us out of ours to theirs, or we That's, ourselves have converted out of to theirs, that threat changes our relationship to those religions. And so while I agree, yes, 100%, we have a different relationship to Native American tradition and to... Um, you know, Eastern, other Eastern traditions. I, I don't know if you push it, though, to participating in their rituals, to their understanding of God. I don't know how comfortable a lot of us in this room, this room would be. Uh, it, like, I've been to their ceremonies, and they're okay with me, you know. Right, but, but I'm not going to go know. smudge my house naming, you know, God... Mm you know, the white buffalo. I mean, I'm not, you know, like, it. it's just not me. It's not mine. No, that doesn't mean we can't be respectful of it being as important to them as... Correct. Yitro Ye- goes one step on. further, and he participates mm. in Israelite ritual that is their most sacred ritual. For Israelites, that's as close as they get, is sacrifice and eating it, right? Only the priests are doing everything else. It, all Israelites have. Their most sanctified experience of relationship to the divine is sacrifice and then eating that together. Yitro does that. That is one step beyond respect. That's where you started the conversation. Why did he do that? What did he hear? Well, if he heard about ten plagues and and whooping Pharaoh and all those troops drowning, you know, trying to cross it, all wiped out, you know, they didn't have telegraph, they didn't have internet, but news didn't get around. If you heard that story about the Indians taking on General Custer, you want to hook up with that guy. It was that big a deal. Which is often how it happened in the ancient world. If your people got beat up in a war, you now accepted the god of the people who beat you up. Why? Because your god just got whooped, like to use your language, right? So if that's the case, why would I worship the god that got whooped? I, I would, of course switch my allegiance to the one who won. Because obviously, that God is more powerful. So to your point, that would be a very ancient Near Eastern way of understanding things. All right, I saw a couple of hands. I was just thinking about the, the degree to which our, we do inculcate our children in that, uh, in this whole notion of you are this, this is right, you're Jewish, you know, or you're Christian. And you know, I hear it's, maybe kids are sort of naturally um, designed to be a take Partisan, you know, it's like UCLA versus USC, Jewish versus Christian, and it's not. We don't raise them to see, you know, these are different faiths and different cultures. You know, you could be American, you could be French, you're just your race. And I, I remember 
terrifying experience as a kid going with my best friend to Christmas Mass, which was okay for me sitting in the bench. But when they called all the kids up to light candles and they asked us if we would light the Christ candle, oh, I was, I knew that was not, I didn't know what that meant, but that was not okay for me. In Hebrew, we say, right, there is a boundary that is very, very clear. That's it. But there's a line between respect and participation. You know, the only thing you can be sanctioned for as a Reconstructionist rabbi when it comes to ritual, not, I mean, there's ethical violations that you can be sanctioned for, but the only thing that will get you kicked out is co-officiating with somebody of another religion in a ceremony, like a wedding. That's the only thing. So, there is one boundary that seems to still set off all the alarms, and that boundary is in any way participating in something that seems to be worship of another understanding of God. It's very interesting. It's still our, like, ah. Well, the other pole in this is what's coming up in the Ten Commandments, which is God saying, you shall have absolutely no other God beside me and not worship anything else, which is... Kind of the flip right. so, side of the... So this goes to our, what we just said yeah. about if you're polytheistic, it's way easier, right? Mm-hmm. Then you shall have no other gods before me. That's where it gets complicated. We're always happy for other people that have our God. Yes. But we're very critical about that. Like, yeah, you sure you're going to be Yes. But, you know... Right. All right. So let's... Carry this forward. This is all good. Love this. And we're going to carry it forward into our next hunk here. Somebody read at 13. Next day, Moses sat as Moses <coughs> among people, the people, while the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. But when Moses' father in law saw how he drove it, saw how much he had to do for the people, he said, What is this thing you are doing to the people? Why do you act alone while all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, It is because the people come to see me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes before me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make it known the laws and teachings of God. Go finish it out. I want you to finish out this business, and we'll look at it as a whole. Seventeen? Uh, yeah. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing you are doing is not right. You will surely wear yourself out, and these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. <coughs> now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring the disputes before God, and enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings, and make known to them the way they are to go, and the practices they are to follow. You shall also seek out from among all the people capable individuals who fear God, trustworthy ones who, who spurn ill-gotten gain. Set those over them as chiefs uh, of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people all, at all times. Have them bring every major dispute to you, but let them decide every minor dispute themselves. 
Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden with you. And if you do this, and God so commands you, you will be able to bear up, and all these people too will go home unwilling. Very, very interesting mm-hmm. scene here. Okay, so. So is this the beginning of our legal system? Yes. Next day, yep. Moshe sits lishpot et ta'am to serve as a magistrate. He is not the origin of the law. This is very different from other ancient Near Eastern <laughs> cultures where the king, the ruler, makes the law. Moshe is adjudicating the law. That is very different. So that's a ming, 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 right? We don't know this, but that's a big difference. So he's adjudicating the law. And the people stood, you could literally read on Moshe, right? From morning until night. What law is Moshe adjudicating? That was my question. What laws are we talking about? God's law. How? Have we gotten Torah yet? We've got the Noahide laws. Don't we have the, is, is that what Moshe is adjudicating, well, or the Noahide laws? Well, at that point, he's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> is he making it up? In a sense. Well, it seems <laughs> that he is doing that. He's doing just that. It seems like he's doing just that, says Reuben. <laughs> well, it says God forbid. God forbid. Moshe's making it up. Do you think the rabbis are going to be happy with that answer? No. Because the people come to me to inquire of God, is what it says. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And make known the laws and teachings of God. Yeah. yeah. How does he know the laws and teachings of God? We haven't got them yet. Unless there's no before and after in the Torah. Unless there is a principle in rabbinic exegesis that says, en mugdamu machar Torah. There is no early or late in Torah. This is one of the exegetical principles of Jewish tradition. There is no chronological relevancy in Torah, unless they're reading that there is. <laughs> right? Unless it's very important that this happened before this. But otherwise, if you have a problem, <laughs> there is no early or late in Torah. Therefore, this scene actually happened when? Yesterday. After the revelation at Sinai. Then why? Ask the rabbis. They'll accept that, that this is out of place. The rabbis are fine with this. The medieval commentators are fine with that. But now they're going to have an argument across the generations, right, about why. Why, when it makes a lot more sense to put it after Revelation, was it put here? Why was it cut and pasted? Why would that be important now? Why not leave that after the revelation? It would be the same impact. Well, I think it's stronger when it follows right away. When you say, look, Moses, you can't do this alone. Look at how... But why is that any more powerful to say God, God gave the Torah and then Moshe stood adjudicating the law all day long and Yitro immediately says that's not right? They just had this, uh, this ritual meal on but that could have come after Revelation. What did I start with? What did I start this lesson with? That really? Really? It wasn't that long ago. Really? Why was you here? What did I start? We didn't start with 18.1. What did I have? Thank you. Thank you. Amalek. This is the rabbi's answer. 
it was cut from after Revelation and put right after the story of Amalek. Why? It was a horrible thing for Amalek to do. And what did Yitro just do? Something really good and wonderful for the people of Israel, right? Why put that right after Amalek? Lest. Because by Moses not being the only purveyor of the laws or interpreter, the people are taking more responsibility and therefore, everybody who's responsible is a participant. 100%. This is absolutely critical. Why put it right? Why have it be Yitro's idea and move it to come right after the story of Amalek? Because what? Uh -huh. Because what would happen if we only had Amalek? Brilliant. So the rabbis say. Lest you Israelites, you Jews, get too narrow a view of non-Jews, it is very easy to say, Goyim, they all want to kill us. They pretend, they may be polite to us, but really, the Goyim want to kill us. I, can I tell you how many times I heard that growing up? Goyish a cup, right? And they all want to kill us. Lest you Israelites, lest you Jews stay in that narrow place, that tsar, right? Yeah. That meitzar, that really narrow, constricted view. Right. Don't forget, Yitro, high priest of another religious tradition that were, by the way, later enemies of Israel, mm -hmm. right? They were later, the Midianites were enemies. Remember, that's a baltzaphon. That did not go well, right? So um, they were later enemies, but... Even another enemy's, you know, high priest did something fantastic for the Jews. Completely democratized the judicial system. Allowed the people to participate in governing themselves with the direction of God's law, of course. Right? Don't forget that. I love that rabbinic interpretation of why this is here and not there. So... But Moshe's father-in-law saw how much Moshe had to do for the people. And he said, what is this thing that you are doing? What comes next? What's the first complaint Yitro has about the system that Moshe's got going on? That's not his first complaint. That's not his first complaint. Because the people come to me to inquire. What is this thing that you are doing to the people? What the? Yitro's first observation about the problem with Moshe being the only one to interpret the law is the people. It's not good for the people, for one person to have control of interpreting the law. That much power, maybe? That they don't have access? To someone who can help them more quickly? Someone over here said they're standing in line yeah. from morning till night? Is that okay? That's not really helping them. What if I've got a dispute and I need to answer, do I pay the person tomorrow or not? I have no access if there's only one person interpreting. And it's not good for the people. I love that. That's the first concern. What is this you're doing to the people? 
that you act alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moshe replied, it's because they come to inquire to come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. So they bring it to me, right? And I decide between one and another. And I make known the laws and teachings of God. But Moshe's father-in-law says to him, the thing you are doing, what is it? What is What does the Hebrew say? The thing you are doing is, verse 17, Vayomer choten Moshe elav lo tov hadavar asher ata ose. Why am I pointing that out? Thank you, Laura. When God looks at everything God says, when God look at looks at everything God does in creating the world, it is tov. Human beings are, of course, tov meod. What is the first low tov in the Bible? Low tov ha adam. It is not good that the adam is alone. The rabbis make a gorgeous connection here between that low tov and this low tov. It is not good that a human being is alone. Moshe, listen. To that, it's not good for you to be alone in judging the people. It's Lotov in Genesis, and it's Lotov here. That it is not good, like cosmically not good, to rule a people alone. It's not good primarily for them, and it's going to kill you. Right? It's going to wear you out. Of course. But, but primarily, it's low tove for the people. Right? KI is what it is because it is a lay professional partnership. Right? It is the participation of the community in making decisions, in deciding what is just for them. What would God's law require of us right now? The people need to participate in that. Now, they need to be wise. And in another place, they have to be wise and discerning. I forget what they are here. What do they have to be here? I forget. They need to be trustworthy and spurning ill-gotten gain. That helps, right? So No bribes. No bribes. <laughs> so they ha- you have to be able to trust your leaders. So, yes, there have to be parameters and there have to be criteria, but it's low tove. But even those things are decided by the community. Who's going to decide who's trustworthy? The community. But this kind of justice is justice for the good of the people. Yes. In other words, it's not justice yes. for God yes. in, in this. It's that the people need justice. Correct. Correct. For the people, by the people. For the people, by the people. <laughs> Inspired by godliness. I mean, let's be clear, right? Mm-hmm. Inspired by what would godliness call us to do right now in this situation that we are struggling with. There's a dispute. It's important that these are disputations. It's when we don't agree that we are called most to need to figure it out together. When you agree, who cares? Like, lovely, we'll do this or we'll do it on Wednesday, we'll do it on Thursday, whatever. But if you have an argument, if you have a difference of opinion, that's when... Right, you need to give the people power to help mediate 
that situation. I just wanted to ask one question. Yes, Jackie. Is this the first time that Moses had like a real father figure? Like... Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Who's his father figure been before this? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. So what's Moshe's only, lovely question, what is Moshe's only exposure to how you do it as a man in power, as a man in relationship to the gods? Not only do you rule singly, your law is God's law. Very nice. It is Yitro who comes to say, you're a wonderful human being, Moshe. You've been misguided, right? Is this the first time anybody... Takes advice from their father-in-law? <laughs> Probably also the last time for the Jews that they took advice from their in-laws. Uh, right. So um, <laughs> the task is... So, that's why it's his father-in-law so many times. <laughs> right. So he says, the thing you're doing is not right. You'll surely wear yourself out and these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. Lotov, that you do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, right? And this is not counsel that's going to go against Yudhei Yudhei is going to be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring the disputes before God and enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings they may know to them the word they'd go and the practice. You're still going to remain the main guy who's going to be articulating and communicating, right, what, what God's will is. And you need to seek out from among the people, capable people who fear God, meaning remember fear and awe in Hebrew are the same word, right? who stand in awe of God. That is the appropriate way because then you're humble. Awe is the beginning of humility, says Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel of blessed memory. So they are awed by right this, this God, which is how it's supposed to be for you to be able to then, you know, deal with the people around these things, who spurn ill-gotten gain. They're not in it for the power that then gets you money, right? The power that allows you all kinds of material resources, you know, ill-gotten means they're going to misuse their power for that. Um, Set these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So they went from Everybody had to stand before Moshe, waiting for access to Moshe, to somebody who was representative and the decider for 10 people. That's a huge difference, right, in their access. All right. And let them judge the people at all times. This is not a one-off, all right, you need a break. You know, or there's this special situation. It's for all time. This is the way it should be, always. And they stay in that position, right, until, assuming, you know, until they aren't able to do it or until they prove that they're not worthy, whatever. But he breaks it down, too, as for minor offenses. Correct. So every major dispute will eventually come to you, but let them decide over every minor dispute themselves. Give them their own power to... Right? Decide in their own lives. Make it easier for you by letting them share the burden with you. If you do this and God so commands you, meaning it, you can check it out <laughs> with you at Ava that's fine. You will be able to bear up. <laughs> and so all crazy. these people, al mekomo yavo v'shalom. They will come to their place in peace. Mickey, you just perked up. I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> you woke up. 
Where do we say this? Where do we say this phrase, this liturgical phrase? We say it as the casket is lowered. He should come to his place in peace. She should come to her place in peace. Right? But this... And Makom sometimes means God. A hundred percent. So this whole area um, seems to be like the foundation for democratic type of... Yes. Foundation. Yes. Yes. Many... There's a huge article, which I'm happy to copy for you, um, that I read uh, once about that, that our actual constitution, you know, our democratic system finds its origins in Deuteronomy. The impulse starts here, but that Deuteronomy is the basis of our democratic system, and our representative democracy. Place that this hmm? type of thinking has come through in our yeah, that there's a code of law, and then there are people in place to adjudicate the law. It's like Moses is the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. Moses is the Supreme Court. That's exactly what it is. This is the judiciary is being set up here. That's absolutely right. Right? But you have to have a constitution... To adjudicate, right? You have to have a, law, a, a text, a law to adjudicate. And this is where it's, the judiciary is set up. Ab- the judicial system is set up. Absolutely. All right. So Moshe heeded his father-in-law and did just as he said and chose capable men. And he puts them in place. And Moshe bade his father-in-law farewell. And he went on his way to his own land. So he went home again. So he went home again. But he went home with something. Something, something. Huh? Oh, you better not say that to the rabbis. So for the rabbis, he converted 100%. But the shot, the simple reading, the, the, the actual reading, the actual translation says nothing about conversion. It just, he came to visit Moshe. He brought Zipporah and the kids. He sacrificed to Yodhei Buffet because he heard all these fantastic things and they're having a great experience with Yodhei Buffet so of course I'm going to offer a zevach we're going to eat it's a dignitary a digni- uh, so, some experience of dignitaries coming together that's lovely and now I go back and I'm the high priest of Midian I got to get back, gotta get back. Yeah, we have our holidays coming yes I'm sorry Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 So her question, Sarah's question, her very insightful question is, is this advice that Yitro just gave to Moshe from Midianite tradition? Huh, what would that imply? So my teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Freimarkensky, said to us, her theory is that Moshe doesn't call God yud until when? When does Moshe encounter this yud business? The burning bush. When does that happen? What's going on for Moshe? All right, Laura. Very nice. Lovely. You're going to throw it in my face now? I said there's no earlier latent Torah unless there is. So in this case, it, it does matter. <laughs> in this interpretation where I'm going, he doesn't encounter Yudhei Buffet until he is in Midian. Until he has married Zipporah and until he has been exposed to 
Yudhav to Yitro and to his religion. So Tikva used to, to, to say to us, so it's the first time Moshe calls God Yudhavavhe. And so possibly it is a Midianite influence on Moshe that brings him into relationship with Yudhavavhe. Right? right? That it is, he left Egypt. All he knows is Egyptian religion. It's not until he's hanging out with another religious tradition that he's opened up to the possibility of experiencing Yodhavavah. Beautiful. I'm sorry, Sarah, I missed it. Moses spent a great deal of time in Midian and would have known about uh, this particular arrangement of uh, of, uh, delegation. uh, Unless he wasn't... Participating in that because he wasn't so important in many All right, so let's, uh, I'm giving you quickly, 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 I'm giving you um, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you know, one of mine and Bert's favorites. Um, because, and I, and I won't go through the whole thing, but I will summarize it for you. You can read it at home. What Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out is something very interesting. He's, he's, he's the place where, we, where I learned that where do we get Lotov? We get it from Eden. Drop down to the paragraph that starts, Moses must learn. You see that paragraph? Moses must learn to delegate and share the burden of leadership. Interestingly, the, say, the sentence, what you are doing is not good, lotov, right, is one of only two places in the Torah where the phrase not good occurs. The other is in Genesis. We know that, right? Go to the italics. We cannot lead alone. We cannot live alone. This is one of the axioms of biblical anthropology. The Hebrew word for life, chayim, is in the plural, as if to signify that life is essentially shared. Um, And he quotes someone who says, what an individual does, religion is what an individual does with his own solitude. This is not Jewish, right? It is what we do with our being together. So what else does he point out that I find wonderful? And he points out that the Nativ, one of our commentators, a great 19th century scholar, says... Why was it important that Moshe share the adjudicating? Not just that it would wear him out. That's not the only point. It goes to this business of not doing it alone, which we've mentioned, and it's something else. Moshe knew immediately, says the Nitziv, who was guilty and who was innocent. Moshe knew as soon as they stood before him and he heard the case, he knew absolutely from God, God's self, who was right and who was wrong. And the Nitziv says that is not the way of Torah. It doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. What matters is mediation. Moshe needed to choose adjudicators who did not know who was right and who was wrong. He needed to push it downward so that people learned to listen to each other. That the mediator had to, if you don't know who's right and who's wrong, you really have to listen to both sides. And just that process of having both sides version respected is what the people needed. To be heard. To be heard was more important than being right. Mm-hmm. Well, yes? In a way, it also kind of says something about fundamentalism. That we don't have to read things so literally it's not 
exactly what it says there. It's more important how we treat each other and how we work together. That Yitro's last comment is exactly what you just said, Linda. Beautiful. His last comment is and that the people should go to their place in peace. That it is more important that people have a process where they can be respected and heard. That is how people will live together in peace. And Moshe cared more about what was actually right than peace. And that the teaching here, the Natsiv says the beauty of this teaching is that God said that is not, and Yitro is, you know, in this case speaking something that God supports, Torah obviously supports, is who's right actually doesn't really matter. What matters is that people have a place to go where they can air their differences, they are listened to with respect, and they are heard there are witnesses that get to say what they think, and all of that happens, and that is what leads to the people being able to live together, ultimately, b'shalom, in peace. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.